Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Scott McAllister, at STMcAllister on Twitter. Today, we're going to talk about postmortems. After incidents, it's important to take a moment and talk about what you're doing right, where you can improve, and most importantly, how to avoid making the same mistakes again and again. Well-designed postmortems allow your teams to iteratively improve your infrastructure and incident response process. The postmortem concept is well-known in the technology industry, but it can be difficult for newer individuals, teams, and organizations to adopt the cultural nuances required for effective postmortems. We're joined today by Jamie Wu and Emil Stolarski from Incident Labs. They are also the authors and curators of the Post-Incident Review, a zine about incident response that they describe as a love letter to the community. Jamie and Emil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having us. Sure. So to get us started, tell us a little bit about yourselves, about the post-incident review and what it is, why you got it started, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Emil and I met when we were both working at Shopify. And what kind of made our friendship was just that we have this passion and enthusiasm for nerding out about stuff. And so let's forewarn your listeners that they're going to get a taste of that today. We definitely, when we get heated and excited about something, we start talking a million you know, words a minute and the hands go flailing and we just, we get really, really deep into it. And one of the things that we really love talking about is like after something goes wrong, or even if something goes right, how do you learn the lessons from that? And it's something that we've talked about since we first met, um, but especially when we started our own business, when we started Incident Labs, this is kind of the thing that we're most interested in now. You know, everyone wants to start a problem. That's why you do a startup, right? You want to fix a problem. For us, it's really like, how do you get better at something? How do you get the feedback to be able to do the things that you need? And what we realized partly was that we wanted to work on this stuff, but we also wanted to read about this stuff. And there just wasn't as much stuff out there as we wanted. And one day, Emil has this climaxing book because we both love to rock climb as well. And it just kind of lit a light bulb above our heads. Emil, actually, you can talk more about the Climbing Accidents book. Yeah, both Jamie and I love rock climbing. And in the climbing community, there's a few guides about how to climb. And there's some organizations, like accredited organizations. But a lot of it is about sort of storytelling and sharing and like lessons learned. Like, hey, this accident happened at this crag, which is like a climbing location. This is what happened. Don't make these mistakes. And the American Alpine Association... We can add into the show notes the actual name of the organization in the book. Every year, they release uh, climbing accidents of like 2017. And what it is, is it's a small book that's just like a collection of climbing accidents across North America and their descriptions. And it's really fascinating looking at this book because when I think we think of post-incidents within companies or postmortems or whatever you refer to it as internally, you always think of this like very large document. You think of like who was involved, timelines, descriptions, like stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. With the book, it like ran the whole range. So if it was a report from like park rangers, they could go into very detailed minute by minute exactly what happened. And then if it was a self-submitted report, it could be something like, it would be like one paragraph, two people were climbing, a rock fell loose. And they like sort of like they fell to the ground 
and that like that's like a one paragraph is that description. And there was a couple of things coming from this. The book would also, beside these sort of descriptions of different climbing accidents, would have also almost like some best practices. Hey, like when dealing with this type of rock, these are sort of some of the considerations to think about. Or when you have this class of accidents, these are some of the first aid skills you should be aware of. And it really sort of helped, like, I think, catalyze a conversation in the climbing community of increasing that culture of always talking about different accidents that happen. So that's the one interesting. The other really interesting thing was the, this range of quality and incident reports. It didn't matter. Everybody, every incident didn't have to be sort of perfect. It could just be, just talk about it. Just talk about the accident that happened to you. That's telling that story is good enough. And I think this was kind of the catalyst for us with the post-incident review is rather than trying to like really raise the bar and try to say all post-incident reviews have to be perfect. What if we just took the ones that were interesting to us, regardless of sort of their length or like thoroughness and brought them together into this sort of like physical handheld piece? Yeah, you might think it's a bit grim because what would happen is as Emil was reading this book, he'd be like, oh my God, look at this accident or holy crap, this thing happened to this person. And you're like, this feels weird to be so excited about all these bad things that happen. But I think it's really having that learning underneath. It's like, hey, someone already had to learn this lesson. If you don't share that across the community, then really there's a possibility that someone else will fall into this same trap. And that's the real thing that kind of became an insight for us was like, hey, if you're always waiting for it to be perfect or to be fully detailed enough so that you can make sure that it is the right thing, there's so many lessons that then aren't going to be learned about and we don't become comfortable sharing this kind of stuff. And so realizing that, you know, it could be interesting being printed, that these stories themselves did not have to be exhaustive and that we were like, there must be people who care about post-incident reports the same way we do, why can't we do something like this? And so that really inspired us to go ahead and just say, well, let's print it. Let's see what happens when it's in print. What happens when you take it outside of just on a website? Because you're always reading them only online. What happens if you actually have it physically in your hand? And people kind of loved it. I think people have been waiting for something like this. And it also gave us the opportunity to just like nerd out hard and what would it look like to take... Because all the postmortems we generally see are in Google Docs. And what does it look like to put it into paper? But if you, it's just the sort of, sure, you can just print it, but that's not the fun part. The fun part was Jamie and I going to zine shops in Toronto or different art shops and looking like, what does like an engineering journal look like? What does a different zine look like? What is the paper? Th- like, how does we specifically, I can't remember the kind of paper, but it wasn't like normal printer paper for our first issue because that weight, like the the weight of the paper just changed the context of the incident. You were like, it almost like, you're like, oh, like I'm going to be quiet in this room as I read this. Like I'm going to dim the lights a little bit because it's like you're elevating it. It was, it was just interesting seeing that the feelings change towards it completely. That's so funny because I could relate to that same feeling of the difference in format to music, right? All right. music today is pretty much available, you know, digitally or even, you know, streaming, but I, I collect vinyl. And so when I get an LP and I hold it in my hand and I pull it out of the sleeve and I see this big jacket and it's like, oh, this is a different experience. <laughs> even though it's the exact same song, it's right, still right. just a different experience. So that that's fantastic. So we have a tradition on our show to ask our guests to debunk a myth. So what are some myths or misconceptions that you would want to debunk? about postmortems? 
Oh, I think the biggest one will be this idea that if you write it, then people will read it because it's good for them. I think this is a hallmark thing that happens is that people go, well, I'm right. I put in a lot of work into this. There's a lot of good lessons. So when I put it out there, obviously people will take the time to read it. They'll find it. They'll read it. They'll digest it. They'll apply the lessons. Ah, perfect. Publish. You know, hit publish and then that's it. And that's just not the way it works. You know, we're all so busy. We're all so overwhelmed. Even if something is good for us, we don't really have enough time or it's really difficult to find stuff now because there's so many competing things going on. And so part of what actually our very first issue we talked about was you can't just write the postmortem. You really have to think about how is the postmortem going to be used? How are you going to make it discoverable? How are you going to guide people towards applying the principles of it? Because you're already spending so much time working on the postmortem that if you are not going to spend that little bit of extra effort thinking about how it's going to be used after, if it just sits in a drawer, then did you really need to spend that effort? You know, and that's a really tough thing, I think, for people to hear because they're like, but I did all this good work. Why are people <laughs> responding to it? It's not personal. It's not because you're not, you know, they don't want to read it or they find it wrong or boring. It's just, if you think about it, we're all so busy now. How do you get that in front of someone so they can actually take the time to pay attention to it? And that's why when we printed the zine, all of a sudden we're saying, hey, we put in a lot of effort. Now just carry this with you. When you have time, it's right here for you. We made it easy for you to read and to absorb and to enjoy. So why not? And then people did. To Jamie's point, there's two sides to it. The one is ensuring that you have a culture of going and reading the like, posts, the reports. And so it's, are they accessible to the whole company? Do you sort of incentivize? So within the zines, we have some incidents and then we always have an article that we write about something related to the topic and maybe a fun story. And in the first sort of issue, we wrote about creating, what's the word I'm looking for? Like reading groups around the, the reviews. And how do you sort of encourage that culture? And then on the flip side, you also want to be writing reports that are actually fun to read. If you're writing them like a boring manual, you're not going to be excited to read them. And then you're not going to be gaining any learning value from them. A lot of it comes from the sharing of those stories. And so it's important to sort of be able to like get both sides of that coin. Post-incident report book clubs. I like that. I like that. That's good. That's Because yeah, it, then it gives you a reason. It gives you like, uh, you, you know, you're getting together with that group. So you have to be prepared when you, when you get to that group. That's fantastic. So before embarking on this zine, what were your goals as you went into it? Oh, I mean, we didn't really go in with any expectations, really. This was kind of a passion project because... Like I said, you know, we were just so excited to talk about this stuff. And frankly, we just wanted more people to talk about this stuff. And we wanted more post-incident reports, right? As we were looking for them, we recognized that companies would be a little bit timid sometimes putting out stuff. It's really vulnerable to say that an error happened and then to pick apart exactly why it happened. And even if afterwards you say, well, these are the reasons, you know, this is how we're going to do better, or this is how we've mitigated and won't happen again. It's such a human thing that when we admit vulnerability and fault, we're worried that that's going to change the way people see us. Unfortunately, we don't live in a culture where admitting mistakes or errors actually makes us look stronger. 
we clearly uh, have a society where admitting any kind of vulnerability is seen as a weakness. And instead, we're just, you know, supposed to pretend like we're perfect, but we're not. And you can't learn uh, if you pretend to be perfect. You have to learn. I mean, anyone who's tried to learn piano or learn to rock climb or learn to cook, if you are trying to be perfect from the get-go, you won't be able to ever get good at what you're trying to do. And so for us, we love learning about this stuff. And so we were just hoping maybe if we put this out as some kind of like positive intention into the world, maybe people will feel more comfortable wanting to do more of these. Because if we care about it and we can say, look, this is okay. It's actually something to be celebrated. Does that change the perception of it? So we printed 200 copies on a whim of the first issue. We brought them to a conference. It was so heavy because each one, the first issue was because we were doing this only three times a year. It, each one weighed a pound each. And so we're carrying this through. Um, Spread across like three suitcases, hoping wow. we don't get flagged through security as we're going through the airport. Yeah, um, just it, it was so heavy. I mean, we had to figure out what, clothes not to bring because we were bringing 200 copies of the zine on a hope that hey maybe someone will like them and it felt so much like i don't know if anyone ever tried to like run for like student council in in like grade school but when we we're handing some of them out in the beginning it felt so much like please vote for us like please read this thing that we love but the reception was so lovely everyone who got a copy we started having people come find us being like I heard you have a zine and I really, really want a copy of it. And people would read it and go, I think it just kind of struck a chord with them because we're all in this field because we care about our systems and we want them to improve and we all want to be learning. But what was so sad was that it was either just some technical document to be put away or it was something that was just posted online and then you just kind of ignore it. And here was like, no, actually, this is something worth kind of paying attention to. So we've been really happy about that. And then some of the like sheer joy of seeing some of the people at the conference, we put their incident into the first issue and seeing their sheer joy of seeing their own like blood, sweat and tears in paper like that was like the best feeling ever because they were probably like, okay, we're going to publish this blog post. No one's really going to look at it. And we we're like, no, no, we're going to like put this together into this, into these like zines and like carry them across the ocean and hand it to you. It was just like so much fun and excitement. I can only imagine I, I had similar experiences in a past life. I was a sports reporter. I would write for websites and that was cool. It was super cool to still see my articles on websites, but then I got a job to write a story for an actual paper. And when I saw that in print, it was life-changing. It was like, whoa, that's cool. So yeah, I, I, I can totally relate to that. So from 200 copies at a conference, are you still producing and, and distributing the physical copies or do you have online versions? How's your reception been since then? I mean, we always knew that there needed to be an online version just because not everyone would necessarily be able to get to a physical version. And also we wanted to lean into our zine roots where you can actually download a version that you print out yourself and fold into a zine at home. Because I think what we wanted to kind of also show was that this is not something that should feel like too out of reach for people. It shouldn't feel like, okay, well now this is only published in a magazine form and then that's it. It's like, actually, this is about 
just having the paper issue in your hand and being able to read it and think about it. And the big thing there is like, you know, like you were saying about seeing your stuff in print, it's because you have to dedicate yourself to reading that print issue. That's why it's so special, right? Like right now I have like 42 tabs open. So if I'm reading your posts more, um, I have it beside maybe a recipe of something I want to make plus, you know, three articles I've been meaning to read plus my, you know, maybe whatever else I have open, of course, then everything just starts to blur. But when you got a printed copy in front of you, you really sit there and say, okay, I'm actually going to focus my time on it. Uh, We've switched to making it actually to a monthly edition because now we realize, you know, before we were printing them a little bit bigger so that they could be at conferences or they could be, if we're going to ship them, then, you know, it would be kind of substantive. But we realize now it's better to have small kind of like appetizers, I guess, every month of a incident report than it is to try to wait every three months. And so that's been the biggest change for us. We're excited for the point where we can, I mean, we're happy to print, right? Like if, if anyone wants to, if, if any company wants to step up and help us print these and send these out, we still love the format. We think that's the most important thing. But that, yeah, that's the big thing. We'd love to get these out, but it is pretty pricey, right? To have to print them individually, send them out and all that kind of stuff. But we really do this for the community. And so we would love to be able to keep printing and sending them out. Actually, Scott, later, you need to tell us where we can send you some printed copies because we will lovingly artisanal handmade copies. We'll send you some (laughs) so you can see. That'd be awesome. Yeah. There's the fun story of we had to get these through airport security. And then there's always the background information of how the office smelled like a printing house because the printer was making something like, I think in the thousands of pages, because to make 200 zines, each zine had like 40 pages. And then we had a whole like workshop where Jamie would fold the papers and I would stand on them to give them that like bend. There's like, there's the, this is the amazing zine. And then there's the, uh, the background story of actual product, like amateur production hour. <laughs> that sounds, I can only imagine. I'm, I'm picturing it in my head right now. of you all climbing on top and pushing them. Yeah. With That's books, great. artisanal, That's- artisanal production. Yes, of course. Of course. Um, I would love, I love a copy. So I'll definitely give you my address after this. So, so while you've brought these post-incident reports together, I'm sure you've seen a lot of them. Talk about the the common threads that you've seen throughout each of the incidents. Oh, man, I think the the biggest one is that while we're reading them, it's clear that different authors have different intentions. You know, what are they kind of thinking when they're sharing this? And the ones that are most interesting, we've noticed have kind of built a story. It really does matter to have a narrative to kind of put things together because then you get context that you don't get if you just, some authors will write in a passive voice and everything is just about what the machines did. And what's difficult about that is that incidents aren't resolved just by machines. They're resolved by the people who are working on the machines. And when you pull the people out of the post-incident report, you're really not telling the full story because how people reacted to things and what knowledge they knew and what they chose to do, that actually matters. Understanding why things happened and how that story came about. I think sometimes people worry that if it's too story-like, maybe it won't be taken seriously. So they go the opposite way. They go really dry. 
they go really technical, they go really boring. The problem then is it becomes unreadable. Everyone will pretend to read it and then no one will actually read it. And then off it goes. And so tell the actual story. And we've been seeing this, you know, Lauren Hochstein at Netflix has been doing a lot of this work around saying, hey, include the people into the narratives, interview people, really get an understanding of how that works. Yeah, I think having a, a common narrative is is key to, to getting a story across. Even though all these incidents have a lot of similarities, what are some of the unique ones that have stuck out to you that have really left an impression? So um, in the latest issue of the uh, post... Ooh, should I set some background? Okay, I'll set some background. I have never submitted something on time. And the consequence... One of the reasons for that is I love randomly browsing Wikipedia and like reading all these like obscure space stories. So our favorite incident, we didn't include the postmortem of it, but we included it in our sort of like central story. It's the story of Apollo 12. So Apollo 12, about 30 seconds after liftoff, got struck by lightning twice in mid-flight, 30 seconds after liftoff. And when that happened, all the like controls inside the rocket went haywire and they lost data uh, in mission control. And uh, you can, so you can hear the audio for this online and all the astronauts are like, we have every single alarm going off. It's just kind of like complete movie moment. And they're trying to decide in this moment because they have this like small window of whether or not they should abort the mission. And at one point, one of the controllers in Houston was like, switch SC to aux, which is like switch the power to auxiliary power. And you can hear again on this radio loop where like the Capcom, so the like capsule communications controller goes like, what the hell is that? And then they're like, okay, like send it up to the astronauts. And then the astronauts are like, what? And one of the astronauts happened to, by off chance, know where this switch is, switched it, everything comes back online, Apollo 12 keeps going to the moon. All in the span of like six, seven minutes. And you can hear like towards the end, as they're sort of like getting out of the out of the Earth's gravity uh, and making it like proper into orbit, you can hear all the astronauts start nervously laughing. Just because they have like they're like basically in shock, like they had no idea. They're like, "Oh, we need to start doing testing more." And why both Jamie and I love this story is because the controller in NASA who ended up the I think it was the ecom controller. I can search up his name. John Aaron. John Aaron. John Aaron knew to sort of like make that call because it was like about a year earlier in the simulator. He had was just playing around essentially. And out of curiosity, he got into this like really weird simulator state and he tried to get out of it rather than resetting the simulator. And that curiosity was just, he was like, oh, if I switch SE to aux, it like reset it back into a normal state. That like curiosity had him like go explore that a year plus ago and then know that like obscure portion of his system. And then like as a consequence of him just knowing off the bat how to fix that, he earned the nickname of Steely-Eyed Missileman, like henceforth, which is just such, you just find out, you clearly like all these people were kind of holding on with the seat of their pants 
trying to get into space and like putting themselves on like large explosives. But then also it's just such a crazy feat of engineering. That's amazing. And yet reminds you that curiosity is the common characteristic among all great engineers, right? That's why we we build what we build because we're like, huh, how does that work? And so that's that's great, great reminder. So bridging off of that idea, what are some of the common keys to success that you've seen when resolving incidents? I mean, the obviously curiosity, what are some other ones? I think that, I mean, it is the central one, right? It's the ability, it's the willingness to learn. It's having that ability to kind of remove your ego and have that curious mind towards things, which can be really difficult because we have time pressures and obviously there are a lot of other pressures involved in resolving incidents. It can almost seem like there's no time to be curious. There's no time to just be frivolous, but it's not frivolous, right? You, it, we are working with complex systems. You can't inherently know everything about a complex system. You have to just kind of dig in and play with it and you never know what might be helpful. I mean, that's at least what Emil says when he's on Wikipedia all the time. He's like, we're working on a complex system. So, you know, I'm just trying to figure out just in case later we need a story for something. This is why I'm reading Wikipedia for seven hours a day. Look, we don't have enough time to talk about the one time astronauts decided to go on strike. But that is a damn good story, okay? <laughs> we can do a pl- you can read that story. We wrote about it in our other newsletter, the uh, the morning mind meld where we kind of just more riff on stuff that we see. But that was so fascinating. I think a huge thing actually is to look beyond just the thing that you have in front of you. I think why we care about space stuff is because, especially in SRE, you can see that there's so many lessons to learn from the medical industry, from the nuclear industry, from all these other industries. And there's always been this idea of like, hey, you know, if you're really into math and science, maybe you, sh- you don't necessarily need to know the arts or vice versa. And it's not oppositional. You actually should know you should draw from everything. You don't know where that inspiration comes from. You don't know where ideas come from. And I think that's the most interesting thing is that so often when we meet these people in person later, you realize, oh yeah, they're a musician or they do this other thing that's really interesting. Everyone always has different like talents that they draw from. It is really rare to see someone who can kind of think that way, who only just deep dives in the very specific thing that they're in. Because then you're really locked into a specific way of thinking. And to do good problem solving, that's not going to benefit you the way that you think it is. And so that's something that we've kind of noticed is that when we meet these people after, we're just like, oh, that is so interesting that you have all these other things that you draw from into your work, even though they don't seem technical. In the first three issues, all of the post incidents we looked at, they were like technological ones. They were like companies talking about when their production systems went down, et cetera. In the latest, in issue four, we actually took a post incident review from uh, Bose headphones talking about they did a firmware update for their like quiet comfort headphones. This is almost like an advertisement at this point. And the like the update had completely messed up the noise canceling functionality. That's what people suspected. Right. And so it became such a like big deal that they ended up going and doing this full investigation report and full write-up. And that was actually the one we tried to we wanted to sort of elevate into the zine because it doesn't just have to be about software. Like good engineering and good investigations are cross industrial like cross group, right? 
Yeah, sorry, I'm just going to Yeah, the reason I, I just wanted to put that in, Emil, was just because it actually wasn't. It was like people complained about it. And then mm. it was like, so I just wanted to make sure just in case, I don't know, if someone from Bose listens, I don't want some angry email being like, actually. But I mean, let's just fight them. I know, I know, I know. I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be like, excuse you. It's in a podcast now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tell me, tell us a little bit about some of the projects you're working on outside of the post-incident uh, report uh, with Incident Labs and what you what you do there. So yeah, actually, we've been working on a product uh, that can help teams remove bad alerts. This is something that we really think is interesting. We think that everyone knows that there is a situation where you get these alerts and you kind of look at them and you go, do I bother kind of opening this Pandora's box or do I just kind of push it aside for later or it comes at, you know, one in the morning and you're like, I really don't want to deal with this right now. Uh, the problem is it's these things kind of add up. And so this is something we really want to tackle because we think that it's kind of like house cleaning that makes things a lot easier once you start uh, getting rid of them. And so that's been a huge thing for us is to help teams just figure out where their bad alerts are, see a whole inventory of them, and then clear them out. Because really, once you get rid of the bad alerts, like frees up your time to do the stuff you actually want to do, all the product work you want to do, and not waste your time on this kind of stuff. It frees your time up to read post-incident review zines. <laughs> or Wikipedia. <laughs> or Wikipedia, yes. Or NASA reports, yes. The important things, the important things. So where can people find th this zine? Uh, so people can find the zine at zines.incidentlabs.io. We'll add that into the show notes. Mm -hmm. And then for the project with tackling bad alerts, uh, you can check that out at obby.io. Send us a message there. We'll have to show you what we're working on and hear about your bad alerts. Nice. So we have another tradition on this show where we like to ask a couple of recurring questions. So what's the one thing you wish you'd known sooner when it comes to running software in production? Oh, so for this one, one thing I'd like to have known sooner is that it's about the people. Whenever you sort of look across different organizations, very rarely is it the technology that will tell you whether or not you will have a reliable system. It's about the culture you're able to foster that will be the strongest indicator. It'll be the one that tell you whether or not your systems are reliable. It'll be, do you build systems that care about the operators and about the people? Or do you sort of not care if you're creating a lot of pages late at night? And having and adopting that mindset has sort of redefined how I look at the technologies that I'm dealing with at the end of the day, because it resets the frame and perspective I have to look at it day to day. Nice. All right. So is there anything about running software in production that you are glad we did not ask you about? Yeah. So for this one, I mean, this is really interesting because we specialize in SRE and the question that we get so often is, should I do what Google does for SRE? And it's a really interesting question because obviously Google pioneered SRE. There's the books on it and there's a lot of knowledge there. But if you are a smaller company trying to do SRE, to run your software in production exactly the same way Google does it, I think the closest example I have is I love Beyonce. I think Beyonce is phenomenal. I love Beyonce. I listen to Beyonce. I try to do what Beyonce does. But can I actually achieve the same things that Beyonce achieves? 
Now, this is not a slight against me in any way, but I am not Beyonce. So when companies are like, we're going to do a three just like Google, you're basically being like, I'm going to be Beyonce. And I have an unfortunate <laughs> uh, reality for everyone. You're not Beyonce. So try to listen to Beyonce, try to hear what Beyonce is saying, and maybe apply some of that. But you cannot do everything that Beyonce does exactly the same way. That is so true. On so many levels. Well, Emil, Jamie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Scott. (laughs) This is Scott McAllister, and I'm wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes on pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.